Good evening, listeners, brave navigators of the enigmatic and the concealed. Have you ever felt the pull of the unanswered, the allure of the mysteries that shroud our existence? For more than a decade, a unique comic publisher has dared to dive into these mysteries, unafraid of the secrets they might uncover. This audacious entity is Paranoid American. Welcome to the mystifying universe of the Paranoid American podcast. Launched in the year 2012, Paranoid American has been on a mission to decipher the encrypted secrets of our world. From the unnerving enigma of MK Ultra mind control to the clandestine assemblies of secret societies. From the awe-inspiring frontiers of forbidden technology to the arcane patterns of occult symbols in our very own pop culture. They have committed to unveiling the concealed realities that lie just beneath the surface. Join us as we navigate these intricate landscapes, decoding the hidden scripts of our society and challenging the accepted perceptions of reality. Folks, I've got a big problem on my hands. There's a company called Paranoid American making all these funny memes and comics. Now, I'm a fair guy. I believe in free speech uh, as long as it doesn't cross the line. And if these AI-generated memes dare to make fun of me, they're crossing the line. This is your expedition into the realm of the extraordinary, the secret, the shrouded. Come with us as we sift through the world's grand mysteries, question the standardized narratives, and brave the cryptic labyrinth of the concealed truth. So strap yourselves in, broaden your horizons, and steel yourselves for a voyage into the enigmatic heart of the paranoid American podcast. Where each story, every image, every revelation brings us one step closer to the elusive truth. Welcome back. Thank you all. I love you all. And as you guys probably know, one of my favorite topics by far is mind control. And I don't just mean MK Ultra and Project Monarch and conspiracy theories in Hollywood, but just maybe having control over your own mind and understanding psychology of yourself and others. And uh, this might sound tangential, but one of my I, I guess favorite might not be the right word, but one of the most interesting sort of mind control. Uh, personalities in American history is a guy named Jolie West. And I've been doing a little bit of, I wouldn't say deep dives, lots of little superficial dipping my toe in the, the shallow end of the pool. But it is a fascinating topic. And while looking through some of that, I came across um, a really interesting character named Eric Hunley. So, <laughs> hey, Eric, nice to meet you. Um, this is basically the first time we're meeting outside of just emailing back and forth. So I wanted to just give you a chance to introduce yourself, where people can find you, you know, like uh, your YouTube channel, anywhere else do you want them to go to and check out your work? Cool. Hey, great to have you. I like this layout. Kind of weird looking at myself in a picture on a wall. We'll, we'll switch it up in a second. This is just, this is your chance <laughs> to be presented to the world, though. Oh, I see. Um, I'm Eric Hunley. I'm a serial YouTuber. I guess you can find me on X at Hunley Eric. That's a good place to go. I have four channels. Um, some of the topics today, if it's Jolly West, is going to probably breach two of the channels, which are America's Untold Stories, where we cover a lot of pop culture history and history history, including conspiracies, you know, with JFK, things like that. But Jolly West himself was covered there, but also on my original channel, which is my name, Eric Hunley. And on there, I cover a lot of subjects like Jolly West. I interviewed Tom O'Neill who has brought Jolly West back into the limelight through his book, Chaos, about Charles Manson. 
and everything going on there. I've also interviewed John Ronson, who knew Jolly West personally and didn't like anything Tom O'Neill said about him. And I interview folks like Chase Hughes, who does actual mind control, wrote the Ellipsis Manual, behavior panel, and a lot of body language, human behavior stuff. So that's my shtick. Uh, and here we go. Now we're just peers. You're no oh. longer in the spotlight. <laughs> but man, that actually is something I haven't heard before. And, and as I mentioned, I'm I'm still a little bit superficial on Jolly West. I've read... Mm-hmm. You know, like um, like some Feral House references and a lot of like Paranoia magazine, um, but I haven't really understood other people's perspectives of him, other than just whoever's bias I was reading. And you you mentioned John Ronson, not and Ronson. Just, I'm sorry, it's John Atac. Okay, Ronson. okay, yeah, I thought because that's the guy that snuck into Bohemian Grove with uh, Alex Jones. Jones, that's correct. But, so you said that um, he didn't have the same opinion as the other author that wrote it. Can you remind me those those two names again and what okay. their varying views are on Jolly West? Sure, no problem. Uh, Tom O'Neill wrote the book Chaos. Okay. Huge mega bestseller. He started the book writing for Premier Magazine and it turned into a 20-year project until he finally released it in 2019. So it's supposed to be released, I believe, on the 40th anniversary of the killings and it got released on the 50th anniversary of the killings. It, or sorry, 30 to 50. Um, he went in deep, and part of what he went into were the ties between Jolly West, David Smith, and Charles Manson. But they're not direct, so I'm, I'm not sure where it's going. I have talked to Tom recently. His next book is going to be Jolly West. So he's very, very interested in the subject. So oh, that's wow, Tom O'Neill. specifically on Jolly West. Yes, yes. Uh, he, he dug in, so he's kind of tap dancing around it because he realized he wanted to do the book on him. So he didn't go into everything. John Atak, and I apologize for mixing the names up. I do it all the time. He is most famous for exposing Scientology and breaking from Scientology back in the eighties, I believe in the eighties, nineties, somewhere in that range. And he wrote a book called um, steal a piece of blue sky which is the most stolen book, I believe, in history from Scientologists ripping it out of libraries and everything. And he ultimately lost a lawsuit, couldn't get it published, had to republish it later. So he has a legacy about Scientology. This is important, though, because Jolly West was one of the top enemies of Scientology. So there's a there's a lot to the guy. He lived fairly long, I think into his 80s. and He's a mix. I mean, everything from dosing an elephant to die from LSD to being with Jack Ruby before he's killed to being at war with Scientology. He's kind of like Sidney Gottlieb. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. The, the dirty trickster. Yeah. Um, the black sorcerer, poisoner in chief. or He was like a complete hippie. So... He was all about killing Castro in every way, you know, diving suits and poisons. But then he he lived in like a, a place with no electricity and a goat farm type of deal. Right, an outhouse. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was like in, uh, you know, Indian style. I, I don't know if it's ashrams or whatever, but very weird juxtaposition. And it kind of makes you wonder if maybe their professional lifestyle caused a personal break with them them to you know maybe be 
trying to get to nature or trying to be something good because a lot of MK Ultra and and things of that sort are dark and and they run in parallel paths. Was there any direct overlap between West and Gottlieb that you know of? Yes. Um, Jolly West worked for Sydney Gottlieb. Okay, so so Gottlieb being the head essentially of MK Ultra's mm-hmm. uh, like like chemical division and and dirty tricks and sleight of hand stuff. So mm-hmm. through I guess just the normal hierarchy, he would have interacted with West directly. Yeah, correct. Uh, well, you know, through correspondence. So this is where it gets interesting because John Atac is quick to attack it, no pun intended, and <laughs> saying that. Um, Sidney Gottlieb was writing and corresponding with Jolly West using his pen name. So ATAC is saying, Jolly West may not have known this is Sidney Gottlieb. Mark and I are kind of like, well, wait a minute here. Uh, whatever. But there, there are some questions in there, and I always want to put out you know, the other side. If there's any question or argument, uh, Sidney Gottlieb did use pseudonyms when he was talking with different universities and things like that did he did he have like a long list of them or or just like a small handful i have to you know what let me see if i have it in my notes i forgot the actual name but it you know it's a lot of this has come up in releases from mk ultra etc and you know how mk ultra is found out right i believe it was um some the official story is someone just found seven boxes that hadn't been uh, incinerated uh, under previous orders. Like a like a secretary walked into a room and oops, there's MK Ultra. Close, close because it it, it was incinerated. Um, Richard Helm said, "Burn it all." Told Sidney Gottlieb specifically, "Burn it all," and he did. Except they got to have accounting. So what happened was they found the accounting records. Right. And that is what tied it together. So a lot of this gets really, really murky when you consider that so much of the primary source material is burned. You have to sort of extrapolate what there is based on the financial records. So so I've got uh, me piecing together sparse pieces, but um, I found some older research from the 30s through the 50s, and it basically stated that the Scottish Rite um, Freemasonry, they originally funded uh, research into the mind, specifically dementia precox. They were looking into schizophrenia and Alzheimer's. It all fell under this big umbrella of dementia precox. And the Scottish right in the, the 30s through the 50s, they were trying to figure out what can we focus on that would be to the betterment of you know mankind globally in a, in a huge impact. So they, they focused in on this dementia precox and through that dementia precox research, they started to discover um, how similar adrenaline and mescaline were, um, and it and it sort of sp- like sparked this new endeavor into psychedelics in particular. This combined with what they found in World War II when they went to the concentration camps and they found um, sort of letters about how they were using mescaline for the same things. This is my understanding of how. MK Ultra s- slowly got its start through, I guess, Project Chowder in the Navy, then Project Bluebird, um, then essentially kind of morphs into MK Ultra at some point. Do I have that lineage fairly correct, or are there any major gaps in there? I, I'm gonna. I, I'm not familiar with any of that. 
And I'd say that the path that I, I would share is different. Okay, what's, what's your path? The path is essentially Korea. Nor, all these people like Jolly West, et cetera, stemmed out of the North Korean pilots who can, you know, talked about U.S. committing war crimes specifically. And the argument was that they were brainwashed using Chinese techniques. You've heard the Manchurian candidate that comes from Ishu. Anyway, in that area, that is what spurred on the research of what's going on here. Now, there's a question of whether we were trying to deprogram the pilots or actually program the pilots. And by that, I mean, it has come out in recent years that there have been people substantiating the claims that we did, in fact, try to release plague bombs and things like that in North Korea, that we, we did some dirty tricks. But that is the spawning of Jolly West, is looking into soldiers and deprogramming or maybe programming them to see what was what was happening. Now, I'm not denying all the other research you just stated. I've just never really heard of it or even looked into it. And the the lineage for the Jolly West MK Ultra path has been that, although it has fallen under the wing of Operation Paperclip um, from you know the Nazi materials that we picked up in in World War II. Not only Nazis, but also Ishu, uh, whatever, um, the Japanese as well. And uh, again, this is just paraphrasing from things that I read and, and only slightly retained on. One of the things that stood out to be about Jolly West was that it seemed when he got involved with um, basically doing this this analyzing, I think it was like a serial killer at first, or it was, it was somebody that Jimmy was on Schubert. base that, okay, yes, can, can you repeat just the the highlights of that story? Yeah. Uh, oof. Jimmy Shaver is a, a horrible, uh, very, very tragic story. He was a, he was a, an airman in, I don't know if it's Lackland. Yeah. Lackland air force base, um, in Texas. And he had like just horrible headaches all the time. And supposedly, and, and this is a problem. They don't have documentation for this stuff, but he went in, in theory, to see if he could be tested on to find out if it would help his headaches or whatever was going on. The claim is that he was fed a bunch of LSD from Charlie West, possibly hypnotized. We don't know. But ultimately, and if this is on YouTube, I'm trying to be careful with my language. I don't know. Don't you? No, be fine. I can I can do whatever we need to, to make okay. sure it gets posted. A, a three-year-old child was brutally murdered and he came, you know, just kind of walking out just like a zombie, blood everywhere, you know, completely red-handed, so to speak, and had no recollection, nothing going on. And the, the theory is that it, that Jimmy Shaver may have been activated or, or turned on. Now, can't say specifically with Jolly West, but coincidentally, Jolly West became an ardent opposer uh, of capital punishment right around that time, and Jimmy Shaber was executed for the crime. The reading between the lines without making any insinuations, but that maybe there was guilt uh, behind what he had done? 
It, it could it could well be. You know that 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 is why I pointed out that you know he did for the rest of his life he was a huge fighter against that, and and that's why I, I want to get the whole parallels. You know, Sidney Gottlieb was a hippie, Jolly West was anti-capital punishment. He, you know, we testified for Patty Hearst. He, he was very much in the mind control scheme and didn't want to kill in the end, I think. And I, I think it's hard to say, you know, think these things, like let's say that he did do it and things got out of hand. I don't know if he necessarily intended to do it. It doesn't make it less wrong or right. But if this was some kind of a crazy side effect because Jimmy Shaver might have had some sort of deep, you know, psychosis or whatever, I don't know. It's a it's a weird thing. And again, I'm not trying to excuse him. I'm just trying to give out possibilities. Sort of like I don't know if you've heard of uh, cannabis related psychosis. Uh, I haven't. I don't think. No. Is was yeah? Can you explain cannabis and what is it? Cannabis related or cannabis induced? Um, that's a good question. Because it doesn't happen to everybody. It's not, you know, universal, just like anything. But there are direct ties with cannabis and psychosis. And one of the people I interviewed, actually, uh, Dr. Hines on my channel, we started as one interview and I found out that he was actually a victim of cannabis-related psychosis, was institutionalized, has been working to get his life back for a while. And I've also interviewed Dr. Shaham Das. Um, psychiatrist out of England, and he works, you know, in the crime units. Um, and he said, "Yeah, there is definitely a relationship between cannabis and psychosis." Now, what I don't know for certain is if it's a matter of if somebody's chemical makeup already means that they're susceptible of being a paranoid schizophrenic. You know how psychosis can be treated, but like a personality disorder really can't. Right. You know, if you're a psychopath, pretty much a psychopath or narcissist, you know, whatever. But um, uh, paranoid schizophrenic, they they do have medications and, and different things that I think can help. And it would make sense that some people have a bad reaction. I find it personally fascinating because I grew up mocking reefer madness. But just think, it's possible that there's a little bit of truth to that. I would also argue if you look at modern cannabis well, I'm 53. That's not the same weed I grew up with. Right. <laughs> I grew up with, you know, skunk weed, whatever it was. It was sticks and seeds. Power. <laughs> yeah, sticks. See, you know, it was not, it was not like the stuff now where they're like saying, you know, this is 10%, 20%, 30%. You know, it's just uh, almost like it's being refined to such a degree that it's becoming a hardcore substance. There was an, another again, paraphrasing, I think this was a, a quote from Jolly West where he was mentioning that he was either the expert or he just liked bringing people all the way to the edge of madness. That was, I'm paraphrasing this. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it I, I can pull, I think it was in one of the interviews originally when he um, started interviewing that airman that ended up, you know, murdering the kid. And at the end of that, they were asking him, you know, all the drugs that he's tried uh, for, you know, inducing hypnosis. And, but he said that the single most powerful element was just sleep deprivation and that mm -hmm. all the, the drug, and uh, you know, the being administered kind of paled in comparison to just making sure that someone didn't maintain a consistent sleep schedule. And that always reminds me of the military because that's kind of what the military is into. Um, 
completely, uh, you know, um, like your own opinion on this. I'm not looking for hard facts, but with Jolly West, do you think any of his research in turn influenced like military training as a whole? Or do you think that he was so compartmentalized that it didn't reach all the way up to that level? Well, I was in the army and I mean, they do call it basic indoctrination training. Indoctrination is mind control. That's literally the meaning of it. Um, did his research influence? Maybe. I mean, sleep deprivation, yes. That is among the deadliest things of all. They've done comparison studies between DUI and sleep deprivation. And somebody who's sleep deprived is far more dangerous than even somebody who's very drunk. Hmm. Because you, you, you're clicking on and off. You're just in, out, whatever. At least the drunk maybe has a degree of coercion. Um, or at least that'll wear off over time while you're awake. But I guess sleep deprivation doesn't wear off until, no, you, until pass you out for and you're <laughs> yeah. done. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, both are bad, folks. <laughs> I'm not saying one is you know okay. It's just sleep deprivation, absolutely. And we use that ourselves. I think before Jolly West, even because that's a common technique for extracting information from prisoners. That you know, and it's, it's relatively mild. You know, it's like one where you're not physically touching them, abusing them. People aren't doing it, so just bugging them and keeping them awake, keeping them awake, keeping them awake. It does, you know, really destroy and and gets the senses weird. You don't know what's day, what's night. That's another factor too. So we've known all of this, I think, since before Jolly West. There's been a number of other books and I guess just conspiracy theories in general that mention Jolly West by name. There's a couple that I've I've never really found specific evidence that's conclusive of. But one of the main ones that I've heard is that Jolly West either interviewed or was in town coincidentally with Timothy McVeigh uh, after they had him locked up. I believe this is from a book called Aberration of the Heart of the Real that was published by Trine Day maybe like a decade ago. Have you ever heard uh, anything about Jolly West and McVeigh with any sort of credibility? I have heard it in our comments section mm -hmm. a lot. Um, I don't know that we found any specific proof of that. and. I don't like to get into it, but um, Trine Days is an interesting publishing house. Um, we've done an episode called uh, CIA in the Media. I encourage you to check that out. And you might, I, I would just encourage you to check that out. I'm I'm gonna say it. You can just blink once or two. Were you saying Chris Milligan and Trine Day might be in, intelligence related somehow? Well, his uh, father sure is. Okay, I I think he's pretty candid about that. But yeah, that's that is actually true. That uh, yeah, his dad was intelligence officer. Which, when it comes to book publishing, feels like this this ongoing coincidence that there's lots of intelligence in books that get. This is on a completely side tangent. I have another show called Occult Disney where we rewatch all the old classic Disney animations and do deep dives on the original fairy tales or children's books that were based mm. on. And it is well over 50% of these books that we all have come to know and read to our kids and had them read to us. A lot of them came from intelligence families, maybe just a coincidence, but it's a, it's very interesting on how often intelligence and entertainment and education all sort of intertwine. 
there's another link to Jolly West that just came up recently uh, that someone just told me in an interview. So I don't even have like a book or research to point to, but with the concept of chaos, right? The Charlie Manson murders, Mm -hmm. Jolly West seems interestingly like not named very often compared to him being the one that was sort of the go-to guy for cults and, you know, like all these, these sort of, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say paranormal, like mind control related situations. Why was he, or am I misinformed that he was kind of like isolated from Manson as it was happening? Although it feels like he was in Hey Ashbury around that time, was he not? So it, it feels like he would have been like a very convenient person to look into Manson. Yes, but here's the problem you don't have, and that's part of what ATAC is going after. I think it's David or I think it's David Smith or Roger Smith. I can't remember the name, but Dr. Smith is who actually was running the clinic that Manson and the people went to. And I believe he was a student of Jolly West and he knew Jolly West. But that doesn't mean that Jolly West is messing with the people directly. I don't yeah. even know. They could have crossed in the hallway. Sure, they're in the same location. But at that point, Jolly West is kind of up the ladder, I believe, a bit more. And I don't know if he was a bit more administration, if he was directly involved or not. But unless you prove, hey, they're in the same, you've got to be really careful with you know some of what you're saying. And you know, uh, back to Trine Day and the CIA books, because I do want to close the loop on that because it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. You do realize that one of the, the top ways to get a hold of a story is to buy the rights to it. And that is a very convenient means to paying off people is with a book deal. And you see it a lot. Like DeSantis just got a book deal recently. Go figure. Hunter Biden got a, a pretty substantial one too that they didn't disclose the amount of. Yeah. But that is a great, and you sit there and you go, how in the world did fill in the blank figure get a $2 million, $4 million book deal when you know, okay, you're in publishing, right? A best-selling book is 10,000. That's really good for a publisher. Right. A blockbuster is like 100,000. That's that's Oprah Book Club numbers. You, I'm not kidding. Uh, I, I, and you're like, okay, so how do you get millions out of that? You you. Books aren't making millions of dollars, especially when you consider the royalty kickback is uh, three bucks on a $20 book. That's a great point. Yeah, even if you were to sell two million books, you're not making two million off of that. Uh, So yeah, some of these book deals, I I would argue too, without going too much of a tangent with the art sales too, where you've got um, controversial figures, not just politicians, but controversial figures. And all of a sudden they start selling art for you know, tens of thousands plus of dollars. It, yeah, it's, it seems like just money shuffling in, in interesting ways. Did I tell you we have CIA in the art world? Part four of our series? <laughs> no. So, so I've heard of the CIA um, maybe, and, and this is, I have like bits and pieces of it, but that they were funding modern and abstract uh, mm-hmm. art. And then also the brutalist designs where they were taking from like Soviet Russia, they started bringing that over into the States as well. Is How, how mm-hmm. true is any of that? 
Uh, quite a bit, quite a bit. I mean, now I'd have to look it up to get back to it because it's been a minute. But yes, they they funded a lot of this. And also, I would argue that art is a great money money laundering tool. Well, and you can keep it outside of the banks. You keep a lot, a lot of them keep them on like these barges in the middle of the ocean, so they adhere to like international tax laws. I guess it seems like once you get to a certain level, and you know the Swiss bank account and the offshore bank accounts just aren't doing it, then you kind of uh, elevate into the art world. Is there is there a world beyond the art world when it comes to money laundering? I'm not sure, but think about it. Since since art itself, the value is subjective. It in of itself is perfect for money laundering. I mean, I give you this painting. I say it's worth a million dollars. Well, now I, I've just cleaned up a million dollars. I think we're in the wrong business, man. I don't know. You're the artist. <laughs> <laughs> you have talent. You do comic books and stuff, right? So I, I don't yeah, I mean, ability. Uh, well, now all of my time goes into the publishing aspect. So it's it's funny. Like once once you get to a certain size, you no longer get to do the thing that you you started doing or at least that's my experience so far um so so the overlap between west and manson is tangential best only because he might have maybe been a mentor or a teacher of the person that was actually interviewing manson is this sort of the same as like Sidney gottlieb was just cutting the checks and therefore he might not have been directly involved with like ewan cameron's work or any of the other doctors that were ultimately being funded by the CIA? Or do you think that Gottlieb had a more active role in any of that? I think I think Gottlieb is pretty much hands-on. I mean, if the guy is worrying about you know wetsuits with poisons, that's that's pretty micromanaging right. for a, 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 you know an administrator. He seemed to be above and beyond just a straight administrator. And we're talking about his various plots to take out Castro, right? That was the one cigars, of the Yeah, I mean, he just... I forget. I mean, they called him the poisoner in chief. Right. They were going to put a uh, thalamite in his shoes and hope that it would make his beard fall out. And then if his beard fell out, he would lose that machismo aura mm. and people would think he was like effeminate and then they wouldn't support him. <laughs> There's go, He's a, Justin, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> there, this is another one that gets into the outskirts of the theory. So, so I fully believe all of the, like the poison seashells and the thalamite in the shoes, all that seems pretty believable. Well, there's records of it. I mean, I I think that it's all been, you know, put out with the church committee. Right. And, and there was an, there was another one in there that said that they considered it, but never actually acted on it. And um, I apologize. I'm I'm not even gonna get the name right. So I'm going to try the name, but it was, um, they were going to like light off a bunch of fireworks uh, outside of Cuba and sort of stage like the second coming of Christ in a way. And there were it was a precursor to what people refer to now as Project Bluebeam. Are you familiar with the, the Bluebeam theories? Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard it. I haven't dug. So I, I can refresh the very superficial versions of it. But Bluebeam states that essentially NASA, fill in the blank, CIA, NASA, whatever, is going to project these realistic holograms of an alien invasion in order to get the world sort of under, you know, the one world government, the like, we're all in this together, let's fight this foreign threat. But that at the same time that the CIA was coming up with these wild, you know, Castro assassination attempts, they were also thinking, if we can stage the second coming of Jesus, then that will sort of like disprove the communist mindset that God's Mm -hmm. not real, and that that will cause the public to turn against them. Although it, it 
they say they just never pulled it off um, because it wasn't practical. Although I feel like if they had the technology, it might have been like, let's at least give it a shot. But I don't know. Well, what's ironic is um, th- there are some material coming out that Joe Stalin might have been related to what happened in New Mexico, Roswell, because he was so fascinated by War of the Worlds and how dumb Americans were so paranoid by a radio show that, and I, I haven't gotten into the details of it, but he he could have been involved in some of those discoveries of what was going on there. That's absolutely wild. And just to tack on to that, another unsubstantiated conspiracy theory that's come up on World of Worlds that I find it interesting, at least, is that Orson Welles uh, may have been knowingly or, or unknowingly funded by the Rockefellers and that the War of the Worlds was really sort of a test on like how many people will go into a frenzy, how many people will believe this, what would be the impact? The same way that the CIA would just say like, hey, if we just spray, you know, botulism off at sea and wait for it to blow inwards, you know, how many people will it affect? How long will it take to spread? Let's just find out. And mm-hmm. it's it's a great point that you brought up before that all we really know of MK Ultra are the financial records, like the documents, who got paid when, a lot of that being redacted anyways. And I, I guess that might have caused me to superficially consider MK Ultra more as like a financing wing of all this. And I guess my interpretation, please correct me if you've got a different view on this. Well, it's an umbrella. um, Like MK Ultra came out of Operation Paperclip or, you know, was part of that. And then under uh, MK Ultra, you had things like Operation Midnight Climax. Right. George Hunter White. That was one of the very first ones, right? Uh, The safe houses in San Francisco and New York. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a great, great story. I mean, just think about this guy. So, such a pervert type of job, just sitting there watching people doing things on acid. You're like, really? And this is research? Where do you get that gig? Well, well, George Hunter White is a very interesting character because he did, I believe, had some personal correspondence with Sidney Gottlieb because he was like the man on the ground, the boots on the ground that could sort of operate both between government and with like the seedy underbelly. But Mm. there's also documentation that George Hunter White was involved with a bust of Jack Ruby uh, at some point. And I don't, I don't know how much more that connection goes beyond he was involved in, in a bust that Jack Ruby got kind of caught up in. Um, But there's a, there's another Mm. connection here, right? Between Jolly West and Jack Ruby and perhaps George Hunter White and Jack Ruby. So he, could have sort of been on that radar for quite a while, not just, you know, when Oswald got taken out. Maybe, maybe. And I mean, uh, uh, you know, Richard Nixon knew Jack Ruby. I didn't know that. Because he recognized him. Yeah, it's, um, if you read about it, actually, uh, Roger Stone talked about it, uh, you know, Nixon had told him. But essentially, Nixon recognized Ruby because Ruby had done work for them when they were busting up the mafia type of stuff. Remember mm-hmm. when the Congress was going after the mafia? Well, Nixon was involved. Bobby Kennedy was involved. Ruby apparently was a useful informant type. And that's like he knew all the cops in Dallas. Ruby was, if you're going through Dallas, Ruby's probably connected some way or another. In that mix, plus he got into a ton of trouble 
um, just pistol whipping customers. And I mean, he, he just he was a really a, bad customer service uh, is what we're saying. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, he ran like a strip club and had a vicious temper. Um, bad dude. We actually have a show on Jack Ruby on America's Untold Stories. Oh, I'm going to absolutely devour that. <laughs> and I mean, I, I wanted to talk about Jolly West, but JFK is another incredible, like, it feels like a topic that you could spend an entire lifetime devouring every little detail and still not even get half of the story. And partly because it's so complicated. The other part is because, you know, all of the records that would really tell you anything substantial are sort of, you know, non-existent at this point. So I'm going to assume you're fairly well versed on JFK, at least up to the par that I am probably a lot more. Um, because done- my partner, you know, um, on the show, Mark Robert, literally uh, was writing with Oliver Stone. So, oh wow, that's uh, in, that's I, I, I absorb through osmosis. You have you right. Have. I am not. I didn't actually even have that much interest in it, truthfully. But it is interesting as it's being presented on our show. But Mark is the complete expert on this. Uh, well, you know, regarding the J, you know, the research community, I am learning too with the audience. So I'm almost a good foil with the audience. Okay, I would I would love to to unpeel that onion as well because that's a a really deep one. Um, an, another one with Jolly West. You mentioned Tusco the elephant that he killed. Mm-hmm. I've also read that there's there's dispute on whether that elephant died from the LSD or probably it was because- not. They I started think they giving died. him like barbiturates and amphetamines mm-hmm. and just like yes. everything, right? Yeah. What, what happened was the crazy ass experiment. But he, because elephants have something that's called musk, I believe, where they go into just like a rampage state and lose all control, he was testing to see if LSD could like inspire the musk state as an experiment versus, you know, people. And he got the dosing wrong. So he figured, I guess it was like, oops, <laughs> it, it, you know, if a, a 200 pound person, uh, 200 micrograms is what you're going to have. An elephant is what, you know, two tons or something. But instead of saying 10 times the dose, he did like a hundred times the dose. It's like, you know, one of those move the decimal points over. And the elephant went, I mean, just like collapsed. And just like went out. And then, yes, that's when they started to just pump in amphetamines, this, you know, everything possible to revive it. And yeah, there is the question. We don't know if it was actually the acid that killed him or trying to save him did it, which it's, it probably was them trying to save him. I mean, the whole thing sounds like complete disturbing incompetence. Yeah, just yeah, po- poke him some of that. Oh, that didn't work. Poke him with some of that without even like maybe waiting very long in between. It sounds like if they would have just let the elephant work through the horrifically overdose of LSD, it could have come out. But I guess we'll never know, right? Because Tusco died uh, in that. Um, so MK Ultra is fairly well documented enough that we can say it's not just complete conspiracy theory fodder. Although there are some ancillary projects that kind of get lumped into that. So if, if you just go into like a conspiracy theory forum or, you know, like a website and say project, you know, MK Ultra, almost always someone will follow it up with Project Monarch, 
which mm-hmm. is sort of a, as far as I know, not documented, but made popular through the work of Fritz Springmeier and Cisco Wheelers. And they've got this long book called The Illuminati Formula to Create an Undetectable Mind Control Slave. I think that's, are you from, have you heard of Project Monarch? No. Are you familiar with it? No, I, and, and that's the thing is it's like there's a weird, I hate to say, we have a, a saying or what we like to say is, if everything's a conspiracy, nothing's a conspiracy. So uh, I want to be very careful. And Mark actually is very careful too. We don't, we hear different things, but I mean, we hear everything, dude. I mean, everything. You'll be shocked how many things there are out there. I don't know if Monarch is real. I don't know how deep it gets. But then when I start hearing Illuminati, I'm going, oh, okay. Yeah, because these, it's like we're taking a conspiracy pie and putting it all together, and it gets really hard to follow. Now, I'm going to go tangential for a second to tell you where I am. Um, There's a book about the son of Sam, and it's by a guy named Maury Terry. I believe it's called Beyond Evil. This is where he links it to the Process Church, right? There you go. So it goes from son of Sam to sons of Sam to a cult to the process church to Charles Manson to Cheryl Tate or Sharon Tate. Wait, what? Hold on, hold on, hold on, back up. And it is um, a, I think, poorly sourced book in what he's doing. And part of what made me draw this conclusion is if you watch the Netflix series Sons of Sam and you see Maury Terry interviewing David Berkowitz, you will notice that it is a shit interview and he is literally asking closed-ended questions and he's feeding him the whole time. Rather than just asking open-ended questions, it's like, I see you didn't kill such and such, right? No, no, I didn't. You did do that, right? Yes, yes. Um, That is a problematic thing. So I'm kind of, I'm personally hesitant to go too far down any path without a ton of research. And that takes a ton of time. So my, my default is going to be probably didn't happen. Probably isn't the case. And, and the only reason is because I feel like if you just say probably not, and then it it causes a burden of proof to come about, it's going to be better information. Uh, this is definitely not the direct link. I don't I don't have any of that direct. I've heard the very same theories where the essentially it's process church, Manson, Sharon Tate, Satanism. That's kind of like the the very broad strokes of that. Um, although there's been lots of connections that have seemed very credible between say like Alistair Crowley and Thalema and OTO and then uh, like the church of Scientology um, and then from the church of Scientology and that, that whole sort of Parsons Hubbard and um, Crowley Parsons Hubbard. And then from there you've got a whole bunch of Mm -hmm. other sort of spring off like um, Encon Carr is sometimes grouped into all of this. A lot of the, uh, like do what thou will, or, you know, I am my own God sort of mentality mm-hmm. branches from that. And I, and I believe that that's where some of the process church is because Alistair Crowley somehow influenced these like new agey sciencey religions. I that, and 
process spun off of Scientology. But it's a weird, I, I don't really know. I haven't dug deep into it. And you, you were also talking about, I guess, like leading questions, like a really horrible interviewer exactly. will, will be like, you know, so red's your favorite color, right? Why is that? You know, it's like you kind of gave them the question and the answer <laughs> and you just have them elaborate. It reminds me, again, in conspiratorial of like the false memory um, uh, syndrome. Satanic the, panic. I had uh, satanic Ken Lanning on my show and I've taken a lot of heat for that one. Oh, shit. What but, kind of heat? What, what did you say that, that got you heat? Uh, it's what Ken said. Ken was the FBI agent in charge of sex crimes at Quantico during the satanic panic. And he is the main FBI guy who said, look, there's no proof of this. You're talking about people having underground caverns, but there's no underground. Right, like the we, big Martin uh, preschool is one of the... Exactly, all of these. And, and he was saying that... And all these cases, and I mean, he he's literally the guy in Quantico and like the central clearinghouse. He's like, I can't prove any of this. None of it. There was not a, a single piece of proof, which people didn't like to hear. <laughs> and um, anyway, that's a few months back. It's Ken Lanning. We, we went into that and you could just have some fun in my comments and you will find out that people are very, very upset by him. Because obviously he's enabling monsters and that, you know, a, a lot of the comments I thought were very interesting because they're like saying, is he denying Epstein? No. I, 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 it, sometimes the, the response you get, and that's part of why I get a little nervous when I get into the conspiracy <laughs> element. is Lots of opinions. Well, uh, yes. I mean, one of my favorite things about YouTube comments is saying, you know, it, what it lacks in knowledge, it has uncertainty. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I would hear everything in there. And a lot of them is like, because he said he could not find any conclusive proof, he did not say that these the crimes did not happen. He helped put away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, quite literally, personally. But he was saying that there's a satanic panic. It really was a bad thing and things got spawned out of control. That's not denying Jeffrey Epstein. That's not denying other people. And it's a, a very fascinating issue to see. And he, he was not a happy camper either, but <laughs> the response. Well, Ep Epstein is an interesting one to throw in there because I've never necessarily heard Epstein related to like satanic panic in particular. Although I guess the, the conspiracy theory game of connect the dots, just like you described before process church and Manson and Tate and Illuminati, right? Like that's the connect the dots game, mm -hmm. but the connect the dots um, for this one, it actually seems that it would have been like Epstein connected to link uh, Clinton and then Clinton connected to like spirit cooking, <laughs> right? Because mm -hmm. of the uh, connection to like Maria Abramovich. And it seems like that is sort of like this QAnon and the adrenochrome wave is kind of this next iteration of satanic panic in a way. Do you, do you see it like that or is that just me? Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've had somebody who claims that he helped put it, put together the PSYOP that is QAnon. He claims it's a PSYOP. I think there's something to that. Mm -hmm. um, look, Jeffrey Epstein, 
I have a maybe a slightly different opinion about him than a lot of people. I don't think he's a good guy. I think he's a horrible guy, obviously. And I think he took advantage of underage females, etc. But I personally don't think it was Jeffrey Epstein's personal perversion. I think that Jeffrey Epstein was an operative collecting blackmail on anybody and everybody he could for much larger players. That's just my opinion. That's why his sentences were a joke. That's why he disappeared. That's why he was shut down is because he was collecting blackmail. Look at the list and find and tell me why it is that Ghislaine Maxwell, they could only come up with four primary accusers for out of all of that. They could only come up with four. So she is there for every single person that's involved, right? but they can only come up with four. Perhaps they can only come up with four that weren't with the bigger names at the same time as them, which could lead into bigger trouble. Like, let's say um, everybody else is with uh, Jeffrey Ghislaine, a famous person that we give a shit about at the same time. Oh, can't have them as a witness. Next. So that I kind of feel was Epstein. I feel like he was literally a honey trap. Do you think there was anything occult related to Epstein? Um, like like with the little St. James layout with the Zorro Ranch layout. And the, the reason I asked, this is another just a wild tangent conspiracy theory, but the same way that Parsons and Hubbard were trying to redo Babylon working in the middle of the desert, um, Jeffrey Epstein has on his Zorro Ranch sort of an arrangement uh, that looks very similar to some of the diagrams that was outlined in the, the Moonchild ritual by Crowley that they were emulating and that he was basically trying to create this like a, like a swarm of little Epsteins, right? Like a whole bunch of little Epstein seeds that he mm-hmm. wanted to, to make like 20 or 30 uh, versions of himself. So I don't, have you ever heard anything that, that would even make it seem credible that there was an occult aspect to this or you think it's an, Entirely intelligence, you know, blackmail. Well, um, you're talking about like Jack Parsons, sex magic and all that. Well, so yeah, the Jack Marsons and Elron Hubbard were specifically doing Babylon working where they were going to take a, a pregnant woman and according to Crowley for the first like three months, the first trimester, the fetus had no soul. And it was therefore the concept of like an alchemical homunculus, like a shell without a soul waiting for one then if you go out into the middle of the desert there'd be entities that aren't latched to other bodies and you're basically like hey you're you know you're you're looking for a body here's a prime one it's it's right for the taking and you're trying to kind of attract it it's like you're going fishing for for entities out there and that that was going to be the babylon working ritual um they claim it didn't work parsons claimed that marjorie cameron might have been the homunculus they summoned but the the tie here is that the Epstein Zorro Ranch, just the configuration visually, like right, it's oh, it looks mm-hmm. like this. There's nothing beyond that. But it, it seems also with the little St. James, like the the rumors and the stories about like underground labyrinths and and these interesting, like almost like Turkish bathhouse styles to it. Like, is it just an aesthetic you think that Epstein just really liked the way that looked? Or could there have been something beyond the occult aspect to it um well you're talking about that and i'm thinking of jack parsons um, hubbard and all i can think is drugs are good 
Yeah. Now, anyway, <laughs> but back to Epstein on that. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I really don't know. It's like, does he believe in it? Maybe. I, you know, I, I never, I never hung out with the dude. Never really studied that deeply. But I do think there is a factor of, as you put it, aesthetics. I mean, if you're going to go into a club and it's like the you know the night forbidden club and a gothic club then you'll probably be putting a cult type symbology things like then there in quite often i mean just and you might not even know what the hell they mean just hey this looks cool or you hire people who are like-minded and they are believers in that and so then they start to decorate this now you said you're huge on disney right yeah i worked at disney for 10 years yeah okay so i i i'm pretty convinced that there were some animators who were screwing with walt and there's a lot a lot of easter eggs that people have come up with of you know putting in phallic symbols and different things throughout the art right oh yeah, yeah i've, I've done deep dives on all of these yeah okay so now a question on that is is this because they're believers and this is a subliminal mind control experiment to try to poison America? Or is this a labor dispute saying, fuck you, Walt, I'm, I'm going to be putting in, I'm flipping you off behind your back every time you turn because I was, you were forced to rehire me due to a Supreme Court um, dispute or labor dispute. He was not well loved by the animators for sure. Um, and the, I honestly get hate on this one too because I tend to think it's not MK Ultra mind control, uh, like intentional. If anything, like I've, I've worked with animators for 10 plus years on Disney property, and I do understand the frustration. Specific, I mean, I, I grew up and I worked in the digital age, right? So the animation mm -hmm. I was doing was like in Flash or it was in Toon Boom Studio or something where it was a little bit easier than the old school way of sitting down and drawing mickey like four thousand times in a row just slightly different one after the other so there's definitely one aspect of like i'm gonna draw a booby in this frame you know what i mean and maybe get away with it so so there's this part but also if you look at the disney animators when they weren't working for disney they weren't drawing like donald duck and and mickey mouse cartoons and stuff on the side a lot of them were doing pinup art especially the ones that were really really good at character art they did that from figure drawing and figure drawing tended to also just be uh, in demand for calendars and advertisements. So you got these guys that when they're not on Disney property drawing children's cartoons, they're drawing voluptuous pinups, you know, essentially, and then they go back. So I think it would be hard for some of them to turn that off. You also there's some some Disney uh, movies where they they go a little bit over like Jessica Rabbit maybe is an example but there's many other ones uh, Great Mouse Detective too has some pretty uh, like raunchy uh, style animation for that but mm. I think that's just like adult men blowing off steam a little bit that's what there's, I'm wondering yeah and, and that was kind of my theory between that and also just saying up yours that that's definitely part of it although the the ones that get the most credit I guess is the um, the Little Mermaid had the phallic, you know, castles in the background, but that was just on the VHS box cover art. And then they recalled that and redid it and put it back out. Uh, the little and the little boner scene. I think that one might still be in it. That one is the one that is the most on the fence for me. The other ones, 
I, I kind of go by the company line. Don't hate me too much in the comments, but that the Lion King, they jump and the word sex spells out. That one's been decently explained away that the, the department that started on Lion King was the SFX department. And really it mm. says SFX and not SEX. And I would just put, put a feather on that cap and say that if they really wanted to embed like, you know, sexual images and destroy the moral fabric of the watchers, it's probably not going to be spelling the word out. Like just throw a, a booby out there and just do another, <laughs> you know, Jessica rabbit. There's the Aladdin one where apparently he says all teenagers take off your clothes. Although you kind of have to he, like know what that is. You're supposed to hear and then hear it. And then you might hear I hate those because that. that's, that's like the satanic panic and planting false memories. Possibly if you say, don't you hear this? And then you can't right. unhear it because now you're you're framing the the sounds to match what it's supposed to be. Like, do you see the white and gold dress? Or someone says, Oh, you see the black and blue dress? The mm-hmm. the other one that has the most credit because it's undeniable was the rescuers, but that one's been explained away insufficiently, but that it was not in the theatrical lease, according to Disney, which would be nearly impossible to solve unless you got your hands on the theatrical film reel of the rescuers, which likely isn't going to happen, but that when they were distributing it for release on laser Dick in, in particular, one of the third party distributors, Disney claims they inserted the, the naked lady in the window as the, the rescuers are like flying down in a city scene. There's like a woman that's undressing herself for literally like three frames of it, but you wouldn't have ever seen it unless you had the laser disc and you put the laser disc on pause in advanced frames because the frames which those um, scenes were in, they would have just been glossed right over at the 30 you know, frames per second rate that was showing back on the, the laser disc. So that one was absolutely a hidden Easter egg. But Disney never admitted that it happened within their crew. They say it was like this third party. So those are the, the ones. But man, I really do think that The Little Mermaid is probably the most on the line there. But you don't have to read into this. You can go back and watch Great Mouse Detective, you can go back and watch uh, Roger, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and they've kind of got some of these overt references to like... Well, who Framed was adult. That was for adults. So, so what on that? I mean, uh, in fairness, that was Touchstone, if I recall. And Correct. Although, I mean, it, it would be impossible to not see it as marketed to kids. It had like all of the kids' favorite cartoons and ones. So. But that's like Camel Cigarettes. Technically for adults, yeah, you're going to pick up True. the kids too, but who cares? It... it it very much, I feel, was an adult cartoon. You know, she was a sex pot character, everything about it. So th- that one, I don't know if it's completely fair because it, 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 was, it was supposed to be a little racy. So so I would say that the Great Mouse Detective had an even spicier uh, scene of, of like a vaudeville dancer coming out and making, you know, insinuations that she wants hmm. to have sex with you. Um, but it, it was a very small moment, and the Great Mouse Detective never really got the same uh, sort of like mass appeal as some of the other ones. Um, so the the Disney thing, a little bit. I actually feel that the real Disney programming, pulling this back into influence and persuasion, I've got this theory I've been developing that I'm sure is not unique because other people have come up with this, but that a lot of people joke about, oh, it's a Disney movie. They're going to kill the, you know, they're going to kill Dan, uh, Bambi's mom in the first 15 minutes. Well, Going back and re-watching all of the classic Disney movies, one by one, we're up to uh, Beauty and the Beast right now, basically. Every single movie absolutely shows you, okay, 
here's a, a kid or some kind of a juvenile that you can relate to as the watcher. Here's their authority figures, the parent, the guardian, whatever. And then mm-hmm. somehow they get separated. Either the parents or the guardians die, the kid gets lost, they get kidnapped, parents get kidnapped, all of these scenarios. But what's happening, and again, reading into it almost from like a, like an NLP maybe level, which I want to get into in a second. Mm-hmm. But you're watching this as a kid and mom and dad, they go off and do adult things and you're just being babysat by a Disney movie for the next 70 minutes. And you see this character you relate to. Oh my God, that character no longer has parents. They no longer have anyone to look out for them. They're on their own. And then the first thing that comes along is this cute little Disney IP character. And it's like, hey, you can trust me. I'm going to protect you. I'm your new guy. I'm your sidekick. And what's happening in the mind of an eight-year-old or a seven-year-old that's still forming is like, mom and dad are gone. They literally left me in this physical reality I'm at. They're, They're nowhere to be found. Bad things are happening. Now this character is kind of my new pal. They're my new authority mm-hmm. figure. And long story short, you're walking around in Walmart with mom and dad and you see that, that new authority figure on a shirt or on a TV or on like a little toy. And it's like, that's my friend. I want that. Even to the point where if those characters instill some sort of a moral lesson or just like a, like a command, you know, next time you see me, kids, you know, buy me, that almost takes precedent over the actual authority figure because the, your real parent abandoned you and this new Mm. character you know little the little woody the toy story he didn't abandon you and this gets even more and more pronounced especially with the toy story where now they say not only are these disney ips kind of like um like a proxy to an authority figure that you can trust but they have souls and not only do they have souls but this woody that's a toy in the movie you Mm. can go and buy woody at the store and if you buy that woody it'll have a soul and it'll be like, it'll know you and learn you. Cause even in the final um, movies of Toy Story, they're going to like recycle the toys and they need to go and save them because that Woody is the one that knows you and that it's like it understands your soul and you understand it. And if that Woody gets incinerated, you can't just go to the store and buy another Woody because that one isn't sort of like in, in booed with your, your soul and your understanding. So, but I think that that is very real version of Disney programming marketing and it's not like we're going to turn you on and be a mk ultra sex slave because you know bell starts singing be our guest but Mm -hmm. the next time you see bell on a t-shirt or a toy your kids are gonna like trust that more than you saying you don't need that they're like no i do need it because that's my that's my authority figure isn't that really joseph campbell and um hero's journey though I mean, uh, if you break it down, and I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just saying, you know, the standard story template of the hero, uh, like Moses, it goes down the river. And, you know, uh, throughout time, the story where you lose the parents, you lose it, you're isolated. Look at Star Wars, Luke Skywalker, he loses his family, his aunt, his uncle, all of these things. So I'm, I'm not saying what you're saying is is wrong. I'm just wondering if that might be a happy coincidence. Like, what if they were doing the hero's journey storyline and then they realized, oh my, and we have this added benefit that now we can put a product in there. And through time, the two are merging together. And obviously marketing becomes such a, a major figure of that. For example, have you ever heard of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Yeah, of course. And you know the, the source of that, right? Uh, I don't know what was it like coca-cola <laughs> uh, montgomery ward 
it was a Montgomery Ward marketing campaign for the. What were they selling? I don't even remember. The funny thing is, I have the original book that that was that. I'd have to look it up again, but it was an advertising campaign that became part of culture. Now, I've heard the same co- about our conventional vision of Santa Claus too. Yes, with that, like we know, like the, the Coca Cola Santa Claus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm just saying it's a it's a weird parallel. And if you if you are making this, because I don't know if Walt Disney he was a sharp dude, sure, but I don't know that he put all this together. I could just sort of see like, hey, we're doing this, and this is happening. Holy cow! Look at what's going on here. Let's see if we can push that button a little more. Let's see if we can, you know, eke at that sale a little bit more. And because they did other crazy, brilliant things like uh, creating false scarcity by it's in the vault. So you have a window of time to buy the VHSs. Right. And I know this because my wife is a librarian, librarian and library director. So she would have to buy enough copies of the movies when they were out of the vault because then they go back in the vault in order to keep the library collection up and things like that. I, I just want to tack on this one last Disney conspiracy theory since you mentioned the vault. This one I feel is is true enough in just like de facto it's happening, whether or not it's the conspiracy theory, but the live action remakes are intentionally being released even with everyone knowing they're inferior because it drives more sales and viewers to the originals. So someone goes and sees the new Lion King with the kids and they're like, oh, kids, you know, the original one was way better. When we get home, we'll watch that one. And that in itself could kind of like spike the sales and they could be like, oh, by the way, you know, the new Tom Hanks Pinocchio live action's out, but we're going to release the Pinocchio out of the vault with a special edition again. I don't know. It's a, it's a funny thing. No, 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 that, no. Uh, I, I, I've never heard that before. And I really like that theory. It, it's something that I, I hope you can find um, economists or somebody who can actually study their sales because maybe you're on to something that answers a completely baffling question. Why would you ever release something that is failing? And to do it consistently over and over and over. Nobody does this intentionally. There has to be a motivation behind. And even if it's to shape culture to your thoughts, that doesn't work in the business world. You don't stay up as a corporation by deliberately failing to prove a political message. Now, uh, going to like Bud Light, for example, yeah, that's a that, good one. that <laughs> could have been, a, a, there could be a hidden cause in there that Mark and I explored, which is if you need to fire a whole ton of people and shift your operations and scale them down, sometimes this could be done because of a product failure. You got to force so, someone to fall on their sword over a bad decision that they were forced to. to well, make. no, 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 no. You you need to lay off um, uh, fifteen thousand bottlers. Well, if the sales are down now, all of a sudden you have a reason to do massive layoffs. Then you bring in new labor at a lower rate. That's possible, and it has the side benefit of giving you a super high ESG score. Right. That's yeah. Now we're talking so you, new world well, order. These all go well. All of the ESG is about what I mean. Yeah, you know, I, I I'll quote Vivek Ramaswamy. I do like his book Woke Incorporated. I have some issues with him as a candidate, but 
his book is very good, and he brings up a good point. What would, let's say, help a Coca-Cola customer? What would actually be something that's beneficial to society that they could do? Well, they could make it taste just as good with less sugar and nothing artificial, right? But that's hard. How about they do diversity day? That's their bit that's good for society. So all the ESG stuff is a nice bullshit buffer to where they could be virtue signaling and showing what great corporate citizens they are and how much they care about the world without it actually affecting the bottom line. Now, the fun part about Bud Light is it is affecting the bottom line, and I love it. And Target, it's affecting them, and I love it. I think that's great. But I'm just pointing out that there. I like your your theory. You may be onto something because that could be a quiet way of saying, you know, there's no residuals to pay anybody in that. There's, it's like the vault may be a hundred percent profit, or you know, it's everything's run out on it. There's nothing else. It's just money. It's just every time they release it, that's just just pure money. Pure money, and they and they secured some very favorable deals at those times that didn't get updated since. So yeah, it's it and another similar theory to branch a little bit, but it's kind of on that same vein as the Twenty Seven Club, where it's like there's this mystical age Mm. where you know great musicians, but also the early days of record labels were basically run by like the mob that turned into sort of like the entertainment industry. But that if if someone was if they died at the the peak of their prime, they no longer have to send any money if they didn't have an estate set up and they don't have to worry about them kind of like fading out or causing controversy and then like losing the money. So you take someone out at the height of their career and then you can just keep releasing their music and remixes and AI remixes in perpetuity. It is the best financial outcome for everyone involved except for the person that dies. Maybe. And then you can get into um, one of those members, Kurt Cobain. And I've had somebody on who ties Kurt Cobain to Courtney Love, who's tied to the CIA. And <laughs> I haven't heard that Kurt one. Cobain. Yeah. It's, it, they, they, I don't know if I would. something for everybody. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to sign up to be Courtney Love's handler if I was in the CIA. They're like, hey, you have to make sure that she doesn't get out of line. I don't know. Uh, they're claiming she was a prostitute working with them. Okay. Well, that, that, I guess that makes sense. Um, and also in the, uh, the CIA kind of like hiring various people, you mentioned Sidney Gottlieb being a hippie, which is kind of funny to imagine that like the head of the MK ultra program (laughs) was also a hippie. Do you think that they, um, had a large hand in the Heightberry ash and like, like, you know, Jim Morrison's dad was the captain on the, the Gulf of Tonkin event. Frank that Zappa's one, dad was in intelligence. Um, like, th- like there's a huge list of all these counterculture people that really kind of came from CIA or well, families of the CIA. Well, there's both. So that's the problem we get into. Like Ken Kesey was supplied all the acid from the CIA. CIA bought the world's supply of acid. Right. Is at Menlo Park is where they did that. Right. Well, he, the Grateful Dead, all the acid came from CIA. I mean, they were distributing it out they bought the whole supply so that is true jim morrison's dad well there's nothing really specifically tying that together other than laurel canyon a lot of artists blah 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 there's there's a whole book on that that one's a lot more tenuous and and 
part of the problem is this. These people were born in the 60s. And they're, or not born, sorry. They came of age in the 60s. Most of them were born in like late 30s to late um, 40s, right? Somewhere in that range. All of their parents were World War II veterans. It was very common for, I mean, think of how many people fought in World War II in this country, what kind of percentage it was. Disney animators too. Another good point is that a lot of those guys that worked on those classic kids animations, they went off to war, saw combat, saw people dying, and then went back and worked on Disney movies again. Yeah, and 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 that's their their natural experience. And people were not such babies then. I mean, they lived hard lives. You know, I mean, uh, you you talk about um, showing death in Disney. Well, look at the the amount of children and babies who died back then. It was very common that a kid named John was the second or third John because they would reuse the names. Child, you know, child death is so common that they would recycle the name. Think about that. A little creepy now, but life was a lot different. But I'm just saying, it. A lot of people had parents who were in the military who decided to do full careers. Some of them advanced pretty high up. Jim Morris's father obviously was in charge of the operations in Vietnam. I don't know, though, and I've never really seen anything conclusive that said that Jim Morrison and his dad and CIA, I, I, I haven't seen any really linkage at all that I know of. And I've read a lot about Jim Morrison way back in the day. It's been many years, but... So, so here's a, a, a very yeah. subjective theory, but the way that, and again, my, my view on MK Ultra, because all we had was the financial documents, is that it almost seems that, and I'm just going to say Sidney Gottlieb as if it was just like one guy running it. Obviously, it was like a whole operation, but Sidney yeah. Gottlieb is sitting back and he gets reports that there's this guy, do, um, Dr. Ewan Cameron. He's mm-hmm. doing some interesting stuff about Canada. psychic driving and LSD and, um, and, it might not be that they approached you and Cameron, maybe him, they approach, but they approach a doctor and it's not like, Hey, I'm from the CIA. We like what you're doing. Here's right. a check. It's like, Hey, uh, you know, I, I, um, have been working in similar avenues. I can get you funding. Here's all you gotta thing. do is, yeah. And, and all you gotta do is take the money and then give me the results before you publish them out to anyone else. That's all you gotta do. Just let me be the person that you report back to, and then we'll let you know what you can write and make public and whatever. So there or they might don't have been even a- bother with that. They may not even bother with that. Make it public. We're going to help fund it. And it doesn't even matter. So some of this stuff that you know could be useful outside is still useful inside, and it's being done for you. See, so you fund it through an umbrella operation because hey. Yes, it's going to benefit us, but you know, uh, you've heard of DARPAnet, right? We're on it. Right. We're on it. It's called the internet. Well, that was defense spending. And it was with normal universities, all this technology. The idea was, hey, we need some sort of communication grid that is going to stay, stay up even in the case of a nuclear attack. So that was a good military reason to have it. But a lot of the people developing it weren't thinking military. They were thinking, hey, I want to have a cool cool way to communicate. Isn't this great? So realistically, it's smart 
to invest in the people who are already doing this. And then you can take that, because you now have a claim to it, you've invested in it, you can get copies of it, whatever you want, and then internally you can manipulate it to another way if you want, and enhance it, change it, or react to it. Um, yeah, I want to I keep talking about MKUltra, but I also... Um, I want to wind this up a little bit just to be mindful sure, of your time and to, to leave some on top for the next one in case we get together again. I want to talk about NLP. Um, so what do you have any broad thoughts on MLP? If someone just, hey, Eric, what do you think about NLP? I'm thinking about getting into it. What's what's your immediate reaction on that? <laughs> well, I'm supposed to be interviewing um, Richard Bandler, if that matters. But Okay. I actually uh, was trained by Richard Bandler. Were you? Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that NLP is a short-term hypnosis. I think there's a lot of good principles in it with science and just the way people think. I've never really studied it deeply in any way, but some of it is, I just think, a mindset and common sense. For example, the whole, your mind has trouble interpreting a a variant from an, an initial theme. And by that, I mean... If you state something like don't do this, you don't hear the don't. You only just hear the the object. So, you know, it's like don't spill the milk as you're crossing the room. Now spilling the milk is the focus in your mind and you're going to be causing that scenario. So I feel like NLP is a process of, of utilizing language and the way the mind interprets things to help clarify messaging and attitudes i don't know if that's a good explanation but that's the best i can do you there's not a right answer to this one because i i get so many different responses to this one do you think nlp is good or bad objectively is it like a manipulative thing that you're doing to people or is it's it a just tool. a social skill it's so, a do, tool. so so do you th- think, let's say that you just constantly employ that tool, you you learn how to read people's eye movements and you learn how to uh, address them because they might be like a, what they call like an auditory person or a visual person sure. or a kinesthetic person. If you start catering to that, mirroring their, their body movements to kind of mm-hmm. build that rapport on a subliminal level, do you see any of that as manipulative in a bad way or is that just effective communication? Again, it's a tool. I can use a kitchen knife and I can cut steak for dinner or I can stab you. It's the same thing, right? Uh, honestly, affecting better communication with somebody else in of itself is not a bad thing. If you're building rapport, how is that a bad thing? Now, if I'm building rapport to cause you to do something that does not serve your interests, now it's no longer as good of a thing, correct? Maybe. And because here's, here's, I guess, where I think it gets murky. And maybe not. Maybe I'm just putting into this. Mm-hmm. But to me, NLP is a way of teaching someone that doesn't have these innate natural skills. Let's talk about, again, like ran, random cult leader like Jim Jones. Mm-hmm. A lot of people said that Jim Jones, even as a small child, had this charisma where he could like start just pontificating about something and other kids would gather around and he would address. So some people are just born with this innate ability that they don't need to learn NLP. They just do NLP. They they can just kind of like consciously 
realize, oh, if I treat this person in this way and use code switching, then I get my way. And it might not even be a calculated version of that. So Mm. I always wonder, what if you've got like a socially inept person um, that maybe isn't trying to do anything nefarious, but they are actively using NLP constantly to build rapport because for whatever reason, they don't naturally have the charisma to build that same rapport. So now the, the versus is almost like someone that is unintentionally persuading you to do things that might not be in your best interest, but it's just because it's their natural state of being versus someone that actively learned how to do that and is now doing that to you. I think there's an intentionality. Uh, you know, uh, mens rea, you need to look at the intentionality aspect of it. Like, if somebody accidentally encourages somebody to do something, that's not quite the same. And I think you know it. Like, if if you're using NLP and every technique in the world to upsell somebody beyond their budget, and you know they can't afford it, then that's, that's getting kind of evil. You're a shit. If you are building rapport with somebody, you're building rapport. I mean, again, it's it's a tool. And I think that trying to communicate with others in a manner to facilitate understanding and rapport is very seldom a bad thing. But then what do you do with the rapport? So if, if you build a relationship and a friendship, that's cool. If you get that same friend to help you bury a body, that's not so cool. Well, maybe. <laughs> I guess we need more context on the who the body is and how you came across it. But yeah, but you get the thing, you know. I do. Like, no, I understand. I mean, there's another. What's man, I'm going to always butcher these ones, but uh, one of the the laws of uh, God. It was basically sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I think it's Arthur C. Clark's Clark. like third yeah. law of something or other. Either him or Asimov, but yeah. Something right. Like but but basically like uh yeah, if, if and this is kind of the Illuminati aspect. If if I understand this advanced technology or if I understand how the astrological processions work and I pretend like I'm predicting it and I'm intentionally kind of persuading you to think that I've got power, like I'm gonna make this mm-hmm. like uh, Apocalypto is my favorite version of this, where the the priest basically tells people, I'm going to make the sun go away because he knows when a lunar eclipse mm-hmm. is going to happen. Um, so and then it's like, and if you don't do these things that I want you to do, the sun's never coming back. So mm-hmm. that's one version of it. Although there's there's another um, an Internet reinterpretation of that, that Clark's law. And it's that any insufficient or any sufficiently advanced ineptitude is indistinguishable from malice and i kind of like this one just because it it takes the intent out somehow where it's like if you end up getting your friend to bury a body with you um and it was just out of like ineptitude or or you just found yourself in here it's really the the ends it's like an inverse of the machiavellian rule it's not the end justify the means it's like the end represents the actual end and how you got there maybe doesn't matter as much. And the only reason I, I lean on this one is because if you can instill, let's all, this will be a politically biased version of it. Right. But like uh, George W. Bush, like holding the book upside down, he freezes in place. I don't know what to do. They just told me the, the towers hit and taking this archetype of the fool almost of, of like the bumbling idiot that mm-hmm. kind of washes away 
any sort of responsibility that you might originally feel towards that. It's like, ah, well, he's just an idiot. He didn't, he had nothing Mm -hmm. to do with this. And I feel like if you play into that, you can just always be the like, oh, I didn't know I was doing, I didn't know I was talking you into buying a timeshare. Uh, I just thought you really liked it. I was just kind of vibing with you. So I'm not saying right or wrong. You're talking about Hanlon's razor. um, Right. Yeah, yeah. In that regard, never ascribe to malice. That can be explained by stupidity. It's the the inversion of the Hanlon's razor. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'd argue that, um, and Mark does all the time, that the CIA uses that all the time. All the time. That they will always say, oh, he was incompetence. Oh, we were stupid. And so that one I'll lean to Adam Carolla's stupid or liar. Right. We never thought someone would fly a plane into a building. And then it's got like 20 years of that exact. Anyways, I want to go yes. down that rabbit hole too much. But but there is that. Yes. I, I, I think that there's very distinctly a stupid or liar aspect of it where y- you know damn well what's going to happen. And you're going to plead ignorance after the fact. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, well... Uh, you know what? We'll we'll play that out then. You're obviously too stupid to have your job. You're obviously too <laughs> stupid to do anything. So, well, let, let's just play that all the way out. <laughs> yeah. Let's find that to its logical conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I I want to transition to this next little segment. It's it's really quick, but basically the rules. I I'm just gonna rules. mention a conspiracy theory or a topic to you, and I just want to hear your rating from zero to ten. Zero being it's absolute nonsense. Don't ever repeat that again to me. And 10 being, yeah, of course that's real. Why are you even asking? So five I'll probably would be like, have a bunch of I don't hear of. <laughs> What's that? oh, that's fine. If, if it's yeah, something you never heard of, you could just say, you know, like no opinion or whatever. Okay. So, are, are you good? All right. This It'll be quick. And I got a little intro for you. Hey, conspiracy buffs. I double dare you to take some PCP, the paranormal conspiracy probe on your marks, get set and go. Okay. <laughs> Zero to ten, humans landed on the moon. Five. Zero to ten, the footage of landing on the moon was legit. Stanley Kubrick, I don't know, five. I never looked into it. Okay. The earth is flat. That gets into ludicrous territory. So what, what is it? Ten silly? Zero. Or, ten, zero? Ten, ten means you believe it wholeheartedly. Zero means that it's silly. I think it's silly. I, that one's silly. What about Hollow Earth? Never heard of it. What about... Um, I, we brought this up before. Do you think Disney movies have any intentional mind programming in them? <sighs> I'm going to say maybe, but I'm gonna I'm going in the middle on that because I haven't dug deep enough. So it's five. Do you think the CIA successfully created assassins in lieu of like a Sirhan Sirhan, for example, like a like a complete triggered on do the assassination, triggered back out, you know, see the lady in the polka dot dress, take the shot, forget about it. Yeah, that's probably eight to a ten. Wow, I, w- I want to get into that a little bit more. Um, what about the uh, the operations where they were doing like astral projection? I think it was like Project Phoenix. Is that one of the names? Um, um, the, the men who stared at goats is the example. Yeah, 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 yeah. Remote viewing. So, and not, not that they did it, but do you think they successfully did it? Oh, God, I'm going to go five because I know actually somebody who was in the program 
in one of the subjects, but he's never gone into details with me. So what would they think of you giving that a five? (laughs) He'd be fine with it. Uh, I mean, because I'm never going to go too far any which way. If you haven't noticed, I don't go completely down the rabbit holes. I tend to look and go, that looks pretty deep. Let me go to the next hole. (laughs) Uh, Bavarian Illuminati was consequential in the 18th century. Never, probably, I don't know, never heard of it. Oh, you never heard of the Bavarian Illuminati? I've heard of Illuminati, but that's like details. I I don't, I've never dug into Illuminati. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit before we wrap up too. Uh Oh. (laughs) Free, uh, Freemasons have control in 2023. Control of what? um, Substantial political troll of world events. I'd have to look. I'm not sure because Masons have a lot of influence just through the ring knocking aspect of it, but control over everything. So I'm going to, I'm going to go right in the middle again, because that's fine. The degrees of control that gets to be very interesting. Harp weather control. Don't know what that is. Uh, high altitude auroral research program in Gakona, Alaska. Yeah, no. You don't have to have an opinion on it. Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of Behold the Pale Horse by William Cooper? No. Okay, it's it's another, it's a conspiracy sort of trove, and he's got something in there called Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars, but we'll I'll skip that one uh, for <laughs> now. Dinosaurs. The way that you walk into the Natural Museum of History and you see a T-Rex and you look at it and you say, that's a dinosaur skeleton. How accurate is that actually a dinosaur skeleton? As far as I know it is. <laughs> so uh, one or two, I guess. I, I don't know. I remember. Or, te- I or ten, you mean? Other, you agree? You agree that that? Um, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight, eight to ten, because I mean, I assume it is. I, I never heard otherwise. Jeez. Dragons? Do you think dragons at any point in history existed, as in you know, fire breathing and flying? Flying, sure, but wouldn't that be a dinosaur? But then I don't know the breed, so I don't know. I mean, fire breathing? I'm not sure, but. Anything's possible. We could they spit acid now. We have we have creatures who spit acid. Sure. So it seems to me like it's possible. Maybe not in the way that we don't. It, that right, we I guess if, if a it, dragon you know, if it yeah. spits on you and your face melts, I guess you could can count that. Right, as like that's what fire I'm saying. Breathing. Okay, yeah, could they acid? But you know, so again, I don't know, but I, I think it's possible but not necessarily mirroring so what would that be a six or seven that's or fine eight, yeah. I, I mean you're not going to get graded on this <laughs> it's just a temperature check yeah have, have you heard of the concept of tartaria before i think i've heard the word but i have no no Tar- knowledge uh tartar well have you heard the theories on world fairs um being a front to destroy existing architecture so the, the theory is that you don't, you don't have to rate this one if you've never heard of it before, but just to inform you, it's an interesting rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't personally give a lot of credit to it, but I find it interesting. But the concept is that there used to be this uh, almost an international culture called the Tartarians, which is really just a reference to like the Russia area uh, in older writings. But that Tartaria was an actual empire that had advanced technology and that people when they came to the United States, for example, the Chicago World's Fair, that the Chicago World's Fair architecture was pre-existing and that they just claimed that it was plaster of Paris and then knocked it all down as a way to get rid of this 
ancient uh, civilization and remnants of it? Uh, specifically because I, I don't know anything about that. I do know that the whole technology ability, I think we have um, lost a lot that may have existed prior. Like I think they found in Siberian caves like beads that had holes driven that had to be a high speed object of some kind. And, and so there are some very legitimate things there. Also like the was Adriana strip or whatever that supposedly mankind crossed over. It's like 10,000 years ago, but they found skeletons in California are like 30,000 years old. So every time we turn around, the clock is reset, I think for prehistoric information. So a lot of things are possible. And, you know, for example, the ballpoint pen, I think, was invented and then lost and then reinvented down the road. There are other things, I'm sure, that may be like that. Things that have been created through time, lost, and are back. Like the aqueduct, actually, is a good example, too. I mean, they, they had running water traveling great distances, and they tore that all down, only to redevelop something else down the road. What do you think the chances are that you personally could be mind controlled? Very high. Do you think it, do you have, and we're outside of the, the zero to 10 now. I'm curious, how long do you think it would take for someone to be successfully mind controlled? Like a, like an average person. Are we talking depends. an hour, a day, a week? It depends. It depends on the person. It depends on their personality. It depends on, like, if you check out my channel, Eric Conley, we I go a lot into that. Can you be hypnotized against your will? Uh, things like that uh, on that channel. And ironically, those who feel that they can't be are the easiest, usually. Because they're, they have certainty. The hardest people to truly manipulate and to truly control are those who are not certain or have an engineer mindset. And I know that sounds weird, but and and I use engineer, some people would say it's a Asperger's mindset, depending, but a person who is uncertain is very difficult to con quickly. They're very difficult to mind control quickly because they're it's hard for them to come down on it on something. They're always uncertain. You tell them something, they're like, um, I don't know. And, and they get stymied up. And it's very hard to get that person to bite because they're they're going around. You've got a time limitation here. You've got to move in order to control them. And if if they're not great at coming with a decision, that's tough. Now, people who are, you know, of a military background quite often. Etc. who are used to following, conforming, going into authority, people like that, or people who are, I've interviewed a lot of cult, um, cult experts, uh, do-gooders, and I mean do-gooders in a good way, like people who really want to change the world and be part of something are among the easiest to mind control and to get involved because they're part of something greater than themselves, their predisposition. And now the engineer mindset that I'm talking about is somebody who's like, you tell them something, they're just so uh, so annoyingly on point, like you were saying. It's about three inches. Are you sure it's three inches or is it really 3.25? Everything you say 
is having to go through this kind of annoying filter. And again, that kind of stymies the, um, the flow, if you will. It's harder to build rapport. I, I've, I feel a little bit of connection to that because I'm a, an engineer by trade outside of doing comic books. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's kind of the thing is when someone makes a statement, my first thing is part of like a, just a contrarian aspect. Like, like a, if someone says, my dad used to say this, but if someone tells me vanilla is the best flavor in the world, even if that's also your favorite flavor, there's just this propensity to be like, oh no, have you ever had chocolate? Chocolate's kind of good, you know, just to like push that along. But also as an engineer, someone makes a statement and I'm immediately thinking, how can I hack that? How can I break that? What are the, the edge cases where mm -hmm. this isn't true? But I also feel like I'm very susceptible to mind control regardless of that. Uh, and I don't know if it's like like a people pleaser aspect. Maybe you're just like trying to, you know, feed into the person. If they're trying to manipulate you, they'll, you know, they're not going to stop you from trying to please them. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Everybody's an individual personality. I'm just telling you who's hard. And engineers are hard. And Is there something that you can teach yourself? Like if, if you were to say, I think I'm a, a very susceptible to mind control, what could you do to like harden your your uh, resolve or are you just kind of screwed stall never take an action i know that sounds hard but if you ever go into a scenario always stall always wait and it's actually a good habit even with shopping like if you see something you like like bookmark it revisit it in 12 hours any way you can stall, because again, everything about this, and if you watch, if you look at NLP, you look at everything, you'll see there's a pattern. you got to keep that going. Keep the communication. Right. As soon, anything that breaks that communication is a reset. That's a say, It's almost the reverse. Okay, so in order to get somebody to your side, you're doing a pattern break, right? And then that gets their attention. Now they're locked in. See, this is that like snapping in their face or like you go to to grab them for a handshake, but then subvert it and like grab their arm. That's that pattern break. Yeah, those are examples. Yes, but it could also be verbally. It could be just whatever, changing the subject. Um, uh, you know, uh, Darren Brown, if you watch him, he'll like go oh, to yeah. the cashier and he just keeps saying, he's like, okay, so everything. How do I get to the such and such there? So all I have to do is to go there and everything is fine. I go there. And, and, and it's like, this weird verbal thing he sent handing a piece of paper and and they just let him walk out the groceries. Yeah, it's it's uh he describes that one as as um whatever the name is, but that he claims that a human mind can only keep about seven things in the, the mm -hmm. front of its mind. So if you can occupy someone with seven small requests, what time is it? Where's you know this bus coming from? Hey, uh, do you have a phone on you? And once you can bombard them with those first like seven essentially, then you can be like can you give me your wallet really quick? And some people just kind of like skip right to it because they're still thinking of the first seven. Darren, Darren Brown is single-handedly responsible for getting me interested in NLP and mind control in general, I think, because I saw a particular episode where he's with Simon Pegg and he's asking Simon mm -hmm. Pegg what he wants as a birthday present as like a 40-year-old guy. And spoiler alert, at the very end, Simon Pegg wants a BMX bike, but he's like, why would I want a BMX bike? I'm an adult man. I've got a car. I haven't rode a bike in so many years. But what blew my mind is that when Darren Brown asked him, what do you want? I'm thinking in my head, I don't know why, but I want a bike. 
And then sure enough, it's a bike. And then they kind of rewind and show you that like on the way there, they drive by bike the shops windows and, and the, yeah, it's psycho crazy. Yeah. And there, there was one in particular who was like, you know, maybe you want a BM or an Xbox. And he was like, it made it sound like he was saying BMW. And then he cut himself off and said Xbox, but he really said BMX. And then he, and he did a lot of things with like wheels turning. He had him sit on like a rotating uh, stool. So like everything was catered specifically to make him want to ask for that bike. And yeah, that, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it programmed me. And that's when I realized like, wow, I'm very susceptible. Like, I don't know if I would have shot RFK if a lady walked by in a polka dot dress, but I definitely asked for that bike. Well, he, he did that um, experiment to find an assassin. And remember, um, he had to go through different groups. I believe that was him. And some was. of it was, it, I, some of it too was like getting them to undress in a restaurant. And half of them were tossed out. Even though they did it, it's very difficult because who's playing along and who really is under. Right. And then finally, I think they had the guy in the ice bath, which is just like, nuts because his heart didn't change nothing it's like he really was <laughs> under and that that was a perfect candidate but he did the experiment i think like two times in different different ways well i yes uh, all of that is completely possible and the more you think it is not possible you're nuts but how do you prevent it well one put yourself in an environment where it's just not conducive for them to do it you know, like if you're always changing up or, or, or different things or you're in a, a crowd or this or that, you know, you, there are different ways to, I feel, be less susceptible. And some of it might even be just developing your own personal habits. You know, my biggest one is find any way to stall. If you always stall, always stall. I mean, think about how you really want something and, and you're like, oh God, I really like that. But then if you say, you know what, um, I'm going to go, I'm going to walk down the rest of this aisle, you know, not the aisle, but like a bunch of shops, you're in the shop and you're seeing, oh my God, I like this thing. Well, I'm going to get all the shops and then we'll come back around and I'll grab that on my way back. I would say a good percentage of the time you won't even get it because it just gets sort of like do I really need that? No. And I'm, other things. And sometimes you don't even stop. You forget about it. I think that's a great advice. Um, and I guess that, that if someone is actively trying to like manipulate you and they see you stalling, uh, it would kind of be fun to just watch them, <laughs> you know, see how can they keep building that rapport? How can I keep that feedback loop uh, closed tighter and tighter? Uh, so I think that's, that's a great example. I want to ask you one last question. Out of all the names that we've mentioned so far, we Jolly West and Sidney Gottlieb and George Hunter White and uh, Darren Brown and Richard Bandler, are there any other like heavy hitting names that you think are a little bit more unsung that people should know more about and look into? Um, I haven't dug as deeply into him as my friend Chase, but George Estabrooks. Um. I have his I have his book somewhere. I haven't got to him, but he is he's very, very deep into uh MK Ultra, etc. A lot of people don't know his name. Oh yeah, no, I also have never heard of his name, but yeah, he's into spiritism, hypnotism. Uh he did hypnosis in World War II. 
Uh, he had personal correspondence with J. Edgar Hoover talking about using mm-hmm. hypnosis to interrogate juvenile delinquents. Okay. <laughs> and another one, and we're going to be doing the episode on him, is... Um, he's Oh, wait, there we go. Do I have both of them? Yeah. This is the um, Esther Brooks book that is out there. And Chase Hughes, who I've had on multiple times on my channel, he actually went and got a hold of all of his studies and was able to go through all of the notes. Of wow, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. I guarantee you I'm going to devour that one and the other Jolly West videos that you mentioned. We're going to also be doing a, an episode at some point on this guy. And this is William Joseph Bryan, who is a grandson or great-grandson. He was related to William Jennings Bryan, the very famous politician. But he not only was a master hypnotist and creep, but he invented jury selection. Oh, wow. And he's another kind of hidden one, but he had like sex houses in Hollywood and he did a lot of similar things to like Operation Midnight Climax. I appreciate that one. I hadn't heard of either of those and now I'm going to do deep dives on them. So thank you for that. Sure. And, uh, and again, Eric, thank you so much for your time. This was, I've, I honestly, I feel like we keep talking uh, for for hours and hours. I'm going to reach back out to you for maybe a more specific topic that we can go in in the future. Um, cool. Let people know, again, where they can find you. And I will recommend if, if there's like one video that would really sell them on your channel, if you want to just shout out that one, and I'll, I'll link it below so people can link and click right on it as soon as this is done airing. Uh, I interviewed John McAfee. When was that? Uh, when he was on the run in 2020. Do you think he's dead? I can argue three different ways with him. And it's a it's a unique situation. I can argue that the government killed him. I can argue that he killed himself. And I can argue he's still alive. And I think all three hold equal weight. <laughs> And maybe he may be the only person in the world I could do that with, but I feel I can. Because one, obviously he knew a lot, was connected. By the way, he he was tied into intelligence, did work tied into the CIA, et cetera, programming way back in the 70s, and I believe some NASA work, et cetera. So there's a stain of intel that's running through his life and some of his shenanigans, you can't help but wonder if he maybe got away with or had a little bit of an assist or maybe some numbers he could dial. Mm-hmm. At the same token, he was a giant pain in the ass about taxation, about crypto, and things like that. There's questions. I mean, the guy I kind of consider a modern-day pirate. So at the very end, he did the tattoo of whacked, et cetera, and said, you know, if anything happens, it's an Epstein situation, blah, 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 blah. But if he was really going down, his health is that bad. I mean, I believe he even told me, but he was drinking two bottles of you know bourbon a day. Um, just took every drug imaginable, very open about any of it. Getting into his 70s, for all we know, his health is not necessarily doing great. Could have been failing, could have been an issue. I could see him in the prison saying, screw you, you're never going to get my crypto. You're never going to get my info. You're never, and, and taking him out. So 
There we go. Equal ends, right? Makes sense both ways. And maybe he had three. that engineer mindsets and they couldn't they couldn't program them to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Or number three, uh, like I said, I feel like there's some ties to CIA, etc. He actually may still be alive. May have been assisted by the CIA. And what what reason would I give to say that's possible? They've not released his body in Spain. You can't come up with it? It got lost? Is it in the shed? Where? Help me out. Oh, maybe they're going to bury it at sea out of respect. Yeah, like Bin Laden. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered about that one. And I, I very seldom, actually never, I've never heard anybody other than myself and the people agree with it say, yeah, I always wonder why he was, uh, you know, just buried at sea. It was to respect his culture, of course. Yeah, but we we, we respected his um was it Uday and Husay or whatever, you know, Saddam's culture, right? By showing them displayed. <laughs> only within a decade here. Mm, I don't think so. Well, maybe we only show that respect to direct CIA operatives. Yeah, or or maybe. It, it's it's very odd, odd, odd question because Especially culturally speaking, in the Middle East, why did we show Uday and Kusei? Because we wanted people to say, yeah, okay, yeah, that's him. And it looks like they're really dead because the culturally speaking, they don't believe us. But they suddenly changed their mind and believed us about Bin Laden? Really? Doesn't make sense. Can't find any DNA around? Can't find any film? Can't find any? Anyway, that's a, that's a very interesting question. So I'll definitely link your John McAfee uh, interview below. And again, what were your other four uh, podcasts that you do? Uh, primary shows are my name, Eric Hundley, uh, America's Untold Stories. I do a show called Layback News. And every Friday I have a legal panel with like a bunch of the YouTube lawyers who are on there from Nick Ricada, sorry, Nick Ricada, Viva Fry, Nate the Lawyer, you know, a lot of the bigger names in the uh, legal community will come in and out. and other less well-known but great lawyers and we hash up like whatever the weekly news that is a friday at noon last channel is nate and eric which haven't released anything on for a while that's with me and nate the lawyer we're kind of we're really close friends on opposite ends on a lot of issues so we kind of hash things out but it's fun hopefully that'll get back up but just you know follow me on twitter or x or whatever i like the naming X. <laughs> yeah, don't dead name don't dead name x <laughs> so again thank you so much eric this was a very fascinating conversation i find all of your research incredibly riveting well worth it um and i i really love the more rational approach and like show me the proof or i'm kind of kind of discounted by default until there's more to it i think we need way more of that in these i guess uh speculative areas where not all the facts are always out and people like to jump around and everything. So thank you for everything you do. Please keep doing it. And I hope to reach out again soon. Cool. Sounds good, man. All right. Thanks again, Eric. And you have a great rest of your weekend, man. All right. You too.